Hello, channel pros. Welcome to the Channel Journeys podcast. This week, I am out here in Grapevine, Texas. I'm at the Gartner Identity and Access Management Summit. It's fun and, and energizing, really, meeting face-to-face -face with customers, partners, colleagues, hearing about the latest trends in cybersecurity. I hope you're able to get out and go to some shows as well, a lot of them coming up. I'm Rob Spee. I'm the host of Channel Journeys, your cycling, sailing, and channel fanatic. On Channel Journeys, I get to talk with channel experts who share real-life stories of what works and what doesn't. We're all facing the same challenges in building successful partnerships and partner ecosystems. One of those challenges I've faced, and perhaps you have too, is transitioning a channel business from startup to a truly scalable program. This happens when you step into a company as their first head of channels. They've got some partners already, already signed up, doing some level of business with and through partners probably. But you're inheriting sometimes a bit of a mess. Or you could be working in your company for a few years as a partner manager and get promoted to a channel leader, maybe a regional or global channel leader. Now what do you do to help take your channel business to the next level? Well, to answer those questions, I turn to a longtime channel pro who was formerly VP of Channels and Alliance Research at IDC, then VP of Partner Strategy and Programs at DocuSign for five years, and now he's the founder of Aligned Partner, where he's helping software companies do more and do better with their partner programs, something we're all trying to do. My guest is Darren Bibby, and Darren is going to share the five things that will make the difference to scale your partner business. No matter what stage of maturity your partner business is at, you're going to hear some valuable insights that you can execute. All right, are you ready to take your partner business to the next level? Let's go. Welcome to Channel Journeys, the podcast for channel professionals that will enable and inspire you to create your best channel journey ever. Meet and learn from channel experts who share authentic stories of their channel victories, defeats, and lessons learned along the way. Here's your host, Rob Spee, a channel chief on a never-ending quest for channel knowledge and adventure. Hey, Darren, good afternoon, or actually good morning. Welcome to the Channel Journeys podcast. Great to be here. Excellent. And where are you hunkered down today? Uh, north of Toronto, Canada. So our weather today is wet. Last week, it was freezing cold. Who knows what next week will be? So. <laughs> Always an adventure. Is that where you're from originally? Yeah, this area. We spent uh, three years living in the Bay Area in California when I worked for DocuSign, and uh, we, we were never going to stay forever. And we, we still love it up here. So, Excellent. Well, I've gone as far north as Boston. That was cold enough for me. And then I hightailed it south all the way to Florida and then ended up here in Atlanta. There you go. Well, excellent. Great to see you again. You and I met, I think it was in the Bapti 50, right? Where we first met each other. Yeah, Rod does a great event and brings good, smart people together for ideas. And uh, that's where I met you. I think you were at your previous company at that point. But I was, yeah. I was a DocuSign. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. And so got an interesting thing I want to chat with you about today. And it's more geared around partner strategy, partner programs. And we, we probably don't talk enough about that. It's a, a really critical element. I love that element of it. I love the strategy. I've never owned programs per se, though it's always you know fallen under my purview. Uh, of what I do, and I like diving into it. How did you get involved in in partner programs and strategy? Well, you know, even as a, a co-op student through university, I worked for Microsoft uh, in Canada, and I did all my terms with them. And so I fell in love with software. I fell in love with, uh, and, and we'll date ourselves, but you know, I was working on the Windows ninety five launch was was my first experience, and that was super excited. I worked with all the Office stuff, but. My middle gig there was uh, the solution provider program. And we're talking about 1996. 
And so, you know, that was my first kind of realization that, you know, Microsoft doesn't do it on their own. These other companies don't do it on their own. They need all of these, you know, trusted advisor partners that customers love. And I got to meet them. I got to understand the programs. And, you know, after school, I went and worked for some Microsoft partners and got that perspective and understood how the programs affected me as a business partner trying to make money for, for the company I was working for. And then I worked for Microsoft Canada. I worked for IDC studying partner programs and, and channel strategies. And then I went over to DocuSign for five plus years, you know, running their partner strategy and program. So that was sort of my arc getting to that point and, and strangely falling in love with partner programs, which I doubt many people would admit. <laughs> yeah, they might love them, but they may not admit it. <laughs> so let's dive into that. So VP of partner strategy and programs at DocuSign. What was the lay of the land when you arrived there from a program partner strategy and program perspective? Well, you know, good and bad because there there was stuff in place, but there was stuff you had to unwind. And I've heard of people kind of going into situations saying, I, I kind of wish we'd started from scratch. It would have been easier. You know, yes and no. So we, we inherited, I, I inherited, I was a, a team of one when I started, literally a team of one, a team of 20 with all the contractors by the end of it. But, you know, we, we had to build up all of the discipline and rigor and process I kind of liken it that, you know, it, there was a road for partners to go down, but it was bumpy. It was dirt. It was gravel. You could get down that road, but you might be robbed along the way. You might be, you might, you know, fall out off your horse or out of your car. Like it, it was just a very bumpy road. And the plan was, let's make a freeway so that the partner business goes smoothly. There are signs to indicate uh, what you should be doing and, and the rules of the road and stay in your lane. And, and that was, that was the idea. So when I came a little bit more of a dirt gravelly road, you could still, you know, get going. And, and we were trying to make it more of a freeway. But at the time, I mean, DocuSign in 2016, it was exciting, right? I mean, the founder, uh, sorry, the CEO at the time, I don't think he's the founder, but they were signing up big partnerships without really thinking of like, can we scale this? Can we actually operationalize it? Right. So. A lot of excitement was in place, but it was a little bit chaotic. And my boss brought me on to say, can we, you know, make this into more of a paved road than the, you know, exciting, but dirt road that we were on. And I think a lot of people find themselves in this situation. I had a, a former cam of mine who jumped into a, his first channel director role and he was pinging me and he was in kind of a similar situation. Hey, they've got this gravel road. How do I build the freeway? So I think this will resonate with a lot of people in their careers, you know, jumping into companies like this. We all do at different points in our career. And it, it's fun and it's exciting, but there's definitely a, a, a formula that you found, kind of the, the five steps to building the freeway that I wanted to chat with you about. So let's walk through that. What kind of, as you got engaged in this, what was one of the first things that you saw that you needed to do? Sure. The, the first thing was really this notion of programmatize everything. And I'm not sure if that's really a word. I don't even want to go look it up because I love the word. <laughs> it's a word now. It's exactly. I'm going to patent it. So the idea is that everything you look at needs to fit into some kind of program, process, policy, right? It's got to be documented somewhere. We'll get into that later. But you know, you, you, you spend your time sort of thinking like I could handle the one-offs coming to me and solve that situation and do it. Let's jump on a call and, and solve that. But you're really like, I, I don't want to just solve that one-off. It's going to happen again. I need to think of what should the program be for this and how should we solve this? And over time, you know, the, the sort of the goal, the, the way you know you're doing a good job 
is when more times than not, you can say, go to the program, go to the document, go to the policy, go to the process. And I don't need to spend an hour with you. We've already figured that out because it's a, it's programmatized, right? So that was, that was really the, the first thing to uh, figure out that everything should be a program. You can't handle one-offs. You'll never scale your business. What are some examples of things that you saw that were not programmatized at DocuSign when you got there that, that you had to roll into and get more formalized into a program? Sure. I mean, um, one-off agreements that were made without uh, consulting operational people, finance uh, folks, the rest of the business development partner org. So agreements had been agreed to. The contract, you, you read the contract, we're like, we can never actually do what we've promised, Right. And, you know, that is just so important to have a program to say, okay, what is that motion? Okay, that's a bit, that's more of a reseller motion they're trying to do. Okay, we've got to get them in the reseller program at this tier. And this is what the rules are. You, you, you can't make it up as you go. So that would be a great example. And there was one agreement, I remember, no names, of course, but it took literally years to unwind because someone had been given a very favorable situation that caused unbelievable conflict and problems. And the partner's like, hey, I got this great deal. I'm not giving this up. And you're like, okay, this isn't going to end well for any of us. And you have to uh, unwind that. And so um, you've got to think programmatically. You've got to put people in, in swim lanes. Anything needs to be a, a program or a process or policy. Yeah, that's one of the toughest things, isn't it, Darren, when you come in and you find all these things. And maybe the CEO appointed a sales rep or who knows who, the janitor to set up some partner agreements. That's the really tough thing when you come in. It's like, holy crap, what did, <laughs> what did they do? And at the time, it was probably seen as a good idea. It was the end of a quarter. We can you know, sell into a partner budget capacity, you know, whatever it was, but it just long-term, not a great thing. And this is a, an important part of the role of a VP of partner strategy and programs. That person is thinking long-term. They are planting the seeds, uh, knowing that a, a tree will grow long-term. Often everyone else in the partner business is on that quarterly 13-week cadence. Like, we, we've got to get stuff done. we got to sell stuff now. And, and that person who's responsible for strategy and programs is thinking, hang on a second, that may be a good idea, but if we do this and this and this, you know, it'll allow us to run this for the long term, for instance. So it's that longer term versus short term thinking is, is part of the role too. I'm curious, you said you were a team of one. Were there other partner people? you know, in other partner roles when you joined or were you kind of the first one? I was the first one formally in, formally in that type of role. I mean, my team did grow. I got a couple people very soon and, and, and were, you know, but they, they were coming from other things. They still had obligations, but there were partner, uh, you, sorry, there were parts of other roles like operations and finance that knew about the partner stuff, but it wasn't formal. That's another thing that this role is critical for is, is sort of, Let's put it this way. By the end of my five and a bit years at DocuSign, I was proud to say we had as many people focused on partner outside of the partner organization as we did in. And it was my group that was uh, keeping that uh, organized and uh, coordinated, right? But yeah, in the beginning, it was uh, I, I had bits of help, but you had to convince them every time. Like you had to re-explain every time. What's a partner? What are we trying to accomplish, right? Then that's hard. That's hard work. Yeah, it is. All right. So programmatizing everything, the next step is actually documenting what you're doing, correct? Exactly. It comes right out of programmatizing everything. So what I have seen at, at companies, and certainly we, we had it at, at DocuSign, but hey, what's the, hey, do we pay on this or do we, what's the rule on, you know, we pay on expansion or renewals or, you know, what's the rule? And, I, and I've seen literally the person in finance 
with screenshots of Slack messages with what the policy was because someone told them at the time. That doesn't scale. And so I had a, a good friend in, in the, the business, Ian, who just every time I would chat with him, he's also in software. He's like, Darren, you got to document everything. I'm like, I know, but we're all the one-offs. I can't. It's too hard. It's just me and a few others. And so one of the things I did to have a like a real impetus to get stuff written down was I tried to make documentation easier. I, I hired a company, had a little bit of money, and I, I made a couple of templates. I had an external facing template, had a dark blue banner on the top, DocuSign Partner Program. I had an internal template, light blue. You could quickly differentiate the program documentation that was internal and, and external. And I just made it easy for my team and for myself to come up with the field guide to referral deals. So anyone internally knew exactly how to document them in Salesforce, what evidence was required if, if it wasn't registered on the portal, et cetera. You know, the field guide to legal agreements. As we expanded, it was like you couldn't, you know, you, you used to be able to say, oh, it was one agreement. Now, now it's like several. So all of that stuff, like if you didn't write it down and memorialize it, people would go around it. They would say, well, I didn't know. And so documenting everything was just critical into both externally to the partners, giving them basically there's four types of document, three main types of documentation, program guides, anything to do with a program, referral, resell, ISV, et cetera. We would, we'd get that out to partners. And then there was basically two internal to make it simple field guides. And that was, you know, simpler, a step-by-step how-to kind of stuff, bigger audience, shorter documents, and then operations manuals. That was the third one. And that was for those few people who were doing a, you know, a bigger process because we ended up with, and I've seen it before, what I call a hit by the bus, won the lottery problem. If someone gets hit by a bus or wins the lottery, all of that knowledge that was in their head sometimes is, is just gone. So you've got to get stuff written down. So that was the impetus. Yeah, that's super important. I'm curious, what's your view on standardization? And I'm thinking from a global perspective, you know, the push towards having a single global partner program with all the same terms for everyone versus, you know, more regionalized program, maybe different discounts, different policies, that type of thing. Where do you stand on that one? You know, just think of Japan, for instance, they, they just like to do business. You should always start from the buyer's journey, but they often want to deal with a local company, local language. They're more resale driven, for instance, typically. So it's difficult to have everything the same, but all, yeah, as much as you can, you should standardize on, on the core elements and they might have different rates. Now, the way you do that, that, that I found was that you try to put as little in the legal agreement itself that's going to bind you and you put discounts and kind of the policies and that in the program guide. They are agreeing to the program guide by agreeing to the agreement. And sometimes partners had a bit of issue with that. You know, I don't know what I'm agreeing to, but they, it was the only way to say, okay, we're going to have a resale program for Japan. Here's the guide. It's based off of the same agreements. So most of the stuff's the same. Your discounts are a little higher because that's the way you do business. And the policies were slightly different. But for the most part, I stand on the fact that try to standardize as much as possible, wherever possible. And the way to sort of break that when you have to is the use of the program guides on top of the legal agreements. Yeah, I agree completely. That's exactly what we did. And, and I came in and I found these one-off partner agreements with just wild discounts that were thrown in. And the reps didn't know, like one partner's getting you know 50%, the other partner's got a contract for 10%. It's like no consistency. So we did the, exactly what you said. We created the partner program and the partner agreement refers to that consistent program. 
Absolutely. And I mean, you know, you as a channel chief have so much to worry about. It's hard for you to completely be on top of all of those sort of compliance things. Like what you just described is not super legal, right? I mean, you need to treat like partners alike, right? It's the Robinson-Patman Act. There's, and you don't want to kind of get caught out doing that. And when you don't have someone like the, the VP strategy and programs, you, you can kind of miss that. And, and that person is, is focused on those sorts of things, right? On your behalf. Exactly. Yeah. I need people watching my back to make sure we're not doing those. Keep you out of jail, man. Yeah. You got a sailing trip to go on. That's right. Exactly. Uh, despite the, the BT orange, I don't look good in orange jumpsuits, as they say. So, <laughs> all right. Excellent. So after you did that, what next did you take a look at? And, um, I also have to just kind of say that these five things didn't happen sequentially perfectly. And, and there's a little bit of hindsight to this. But for the most part, you know, we were trying to programmatize things and then getting things documented. They, it, this was always ongoing. The third thing that happened was I realized that we needed partner support teams, program support teams. And so on a cost effective basis, like how do you manage the, the long tail of your partners? How do you manage the onboarding? As much as we would all like to say, you know, go to the portal. But have you ever had to call the IRS for just some help, right? Like, I mean, I had to call recently and because I lived in the US, it's a huge pain. But, you know, it's like your wait time is three hours. And like, just it, it's so hard to do business there, for instance, right? So I didn't want that to happen with our long tail partners, our onboarded partners. So we created what we called the partner services advisor team. And it was uh, imitations, a sincerest form of flattery. It was SAP did this, right? Oracle did this. Microsoft did this. They'd have this idea of a long tail team. You would take the SDRs from that organization, right? Sales development reps. And this was sort of a step up for them to be a partner service advisor. And this team would handle everything that came into the, you know, partners at DocuSign.com. Anyone could kind of do the same thing. That was the main thing. And they were, the partners had somewhere to go when they didn't have a, a you know, they weren't managed by a, a partner account manager and the like. And so this team just solved all sorts of problems. And they were like, uh, hey, I hear you. I've heard your concern. I know where you're trying to go. It, you know, 20% of the time they're like, yep, I know exactly what you need. Go to the portal. 20% of the time it's like, hey, let's set up a call and, and we'll get into that for you. But the partners felt heard. Before that, uh, the stories where I remember our VP of support she said, uh, last uh, DocuSign conference I was at, a bunch of partners uh, tackled me and had all these questions because they couldn't get to anyone. They couldn't reach anyone. They found a DocuSign person, they, you know, they, they tackled her. So that was first, the Partner Service Advisor Program. Over time, we then said, hang on a second, we have an opportunity to, to hire an offshore team at a kind of like a five to one ratio or something of, of cost, right? So you could get one person in, in California or you can get five or six offshore. So we had a wonderful team out of the Philippines and they then became the very first group taking a look at the partners at DocuSign.com emails. Again, if they could answer them, great, answer them. Otherwise, it would go to the PSA team and, and someone would find them an answer. But this team, the offshore team helped us with uh, data quality. You've got to, like everything was based on our data, right? But it wasn't clean. And it was the kind of thing where we'd say, okay, you know, one of the, the folks you, for the next month, you're going to look at our ISV data, all the integrations, and you're just going to clean them up. You know, sometimes the, the profile wasn't done completely. So go back out, fill it in. Let's get clean data. Once we had that data, we, we then had, we created applications on top of it that we could 
go and take a look at all our integrations. It was unbelievably good. But, you know, that offshore team, they just all the program operations, checking the quality of the documents, you know, checking the make sure all the stuff on the portal was working, all the portal administration, the the data quality. Uh, and what was great is we had really good tenure or uh, we just kept people. And so they get to know our programs better and better, and they just became more and more valuable. So those program support teams were, were super valuable over, over time. Interesting. Were they speaking directly to partners or were they more back office? So the program ops team offshore didn't really let them talk to partners unless it was, hey, go to the portal. Here's the resource you're looking for. The partner services advisor team, these are the future stars. So absolutely, they were talking to partners. They already had some background as, as sales development reps. You know, Rob, one of the things you probably over time have had a, an issue with is, you know, where am I going to find my next great talent on my team? And so we had created a little bit of a career path that someone could come into the company as an SDR, move up to this partner service advisor role, do that for a couple of years. And then become sort of a, you know, sure, lower level, but they'd become a full-on partner account manager. And so I always, it was, you know, felt great. People were always coming after my, my people saying, hey, we've got an opening, you know, such and such would be great for it. And, you know, you felt pride. And then you're also like, go away. I need them for a while longer. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. How many partners did you have there? So uh, I think like everyone, there was, uh, you know, the, the casual opportunistic partners, which is a very long list into the thousands. And uh, I have a lot of opinions on that long tail too. Uh, if you can hang on to them, they become your next best partners at times. So you don't want to totally dismiss them because I hear a lot of people say, we're only going to focus on you know, three partners. And then, and then very you know, active partners was well into the hundreds of, of partners that were active, either referring business every year, reselling business, integrating. We had all those models. And so, yeah, it, it was a good size program for sure. Not small. Was the Philippines team handling more of the long tail? Well, sometimes, and when, if you were Accenture, you weren't going into partners at DocuSign.com, but when you were partner, you know, 200, often that was a, a good way to get, get into us. So in that respect, they were handling the long tail, the partner service advisor team, they were handling the long tail, but the, the program ops team out of the Philippines, you know, was working on all of our partners. Just imagine the, a great thing we did is we cleaned up all the partner records of all of the best partners and the ones we work with. So they would go through and make sure they were fully filled out. They were, you know, clean. They, they made sense. They would check things. And, you know, it was a pleasure to work with our data after a while because it was, it was good data. Yeah. Really interesting. I'm, I'm going to take a look at that model, Darren. Absolutely. Yeah. Very cool. All right. That, that sounded like it gave you a huge lift having that team. What other sorts of things did you start doing? Well, if we're on to the fourth thing that we did to, to scale the partner business and what I think a lot of people need to do is is really think, think through that relationship with direct sales and how you harmonize with direct sales. And that's kind of my number four. The North Star is to make it easy for the field to work with your partners. And you know your mix of direct versus channel sales may be different. For a business applications company like DocuSign, typically companies like that start out very much direct, almost 100% direct. And, and we had some product-led growth to a lot of web, uh, web business too. So partner grew and grew and grew. In fact, over the time I was there, we tripled our percentage contribution to the business, which is incredible, right? How much partners were influencing, reselling, referring, integrating to our, our business. And it was, it was 
was, it was quite a lot by by the end. All the meanwhile, you know, DocuSign was growing. So we, I figure we had a nine to 10 increase over the five plus years I was there of our partner business it was incredible. But direct sales was still the really the go-to method in the company. So we had to make it easier for people who are used to going direct to work with partners, make it easier for them to understand it, why they'd want to do it. And so there was a, a handful of things that that we implemented, which I think other companies should look at. I'll start with the hardest one. We implemented a compensation neutrality uh, program. So our reps at the company were upset that they were only getting X percent of the deal versus 100 percent of the deal because some partner, you know, got some margin and I got a haircut on the deal. And, you know, you'd, you'd hear that attitude, you'd hear that. And you're in the, in the early days, you're kind of like, yeah, but you wouldn't have got that deal without that partner, you know? Yeah, but still. And, and so you had situations where they would, uh, the, the reps would undercut a, a partner relationship that had been built over years because they were missing out on a percentage of, of that deal. And, and so you've heard the phrase, you know, trust is earned in drops, but lost in buckets. They were ready to tip the bucket over because of their few percent, right? So we went out and talked to other companies who'd done comp neutrality. How'd they do it? We talked, we worked with our financial planning and analysis team to figure out how we would be able to do it. And uh, over time, and it was one of my proudest moments, and I think Mark's too, my, my boss, that we got that implemented. And man, did that smooth over relationships as the direct team was working on deals and the reseller was there. Um, this was a way to get them to work together better. That's not an easy thing to accomplish to get everyone on board with it. What did the financial conversations look like? How did you adjust for that? Did you have to, for example, raise quotas to allow for this? And how did you make that transition? You know, that, that's a big pill to swallow for the sales team. Well, I mean, you basically do the math to say, hey, all those deals you were going only getting X percent on, if you do that amount of deals again and you get 100% on it, you know, you're going to be way ahead. So what was interesting, you know, depending on the team and depending on the region, they were reliant on partners more. So that did make it more difficult, right? A team that barely used partners, you know, that it, it, it never affected them that much. But if you were really using partners, it would affect you. So they, the, the, the folks who use partners a lot are like, yeah, I'll take a bit of a quota increase if, if my, I'm shooting three pointers versus two pointers to use a sports metaphor. So we went through and, and it was, uh, other people in the industry are doing it. If we're going to go after this reseller thing, you know, we might as well not do it if we don't have this because we can't live with the conflict. You know, look how much money it took us to make that one partner relationship and it can be thrown away in an instant. So there was a calculation there. So it, it was absolutely a multifaceted approach dealing with the finance team that, that was, you know, really numbers based. And so it, it wasn't easy. It did take multiple fiscal years to lay the groundwork, lay some more groundwork, get some more data, get some more input. And over time, we, we did get that in. And yeah, you, you got to raise your sales overlays as the big one. So the overlay was the, the most important one to, to afford it. What was the impact once you finally got that implemented? I, I mean, you had harmony. I mean, I use the word that, you know, thing number four that you do is harmonize with direct sales. I mean, you got harmony because they there was so much on these deals and that just started to whittle away and people were now talking with each other and partners were happier. That way, you know, the, some of the partners we worked with who had gone through this conflict, it's just, it was just not nice to work with us before that. And then we, when we got it in, it was, it was nicer to work with. So we, we felt that. The, the other one though, too, in terms of the neutrality was the implementation services neutrality. So a lot of companies have sales reps with a, a PSO, professional services organization quota right? Like you X percent of your quota is, is getting, is selling, you know, our vendors own professional services. 
Well, what does that do to your SI partners and consultancies who are making money with you doing the services? So that was one that had to be figured out. You can't have a partner bring you a deal and then get cut out of the services, which was the only reason they were bringing you a deal, right? And so that kind of implementation services neutrality was a, was another one too. How did you solve for that one? That That's a tricky one. It, again, over time, but it, it was one of them. It's like, if we're going to do this, if we are going to build up a um, an SI you know, set of partners that over time, you know, of all of the DocuSign services that are going to happen in the world in a year, the percentage that's going to be DocuSign is going to get smaller and smaller as we grow this bigger community. So I think the, you know, having a North Star of where you want to go with it really helps. And just leadership that understands if we're going to go this way, you, you just can't incent it the other way. So it, it, that one was more of a, a big picture. You know, the only way for us to really grow this is through partners okay, we can't put this uh, compensation that is directly in conflict of that in the way. How did you execute it though, Darren? Did you sub to the partner? Like the rep could sell the partner services and then you sub it back to the partner? You know, that's one way to accomplish it. So in the early, yeah. So in the early days, that was kind of the way to do it. I think I, I don't love that because that's not always the way the partner wants to work. But at least if you are, are putting it through, you know, the vendor, you, you can kind of count it and, and the rep. So that was sort of the early way to solve it. You know, other ways to solve it that I have seen, and I'm, I'm not going to get into too many details on that exact one, but, you know, you just take it out altogether and you're just pushing. It's just the right thing to do to get services with it because the customer will be happier. The services come from internal. The services co could come from external. Another thing you can do is just give some credit in some form or another to the rep um, if either PSO or the partner does the services, so a SPIF or some kind of compensation that way. But I'll, I'll also say this has also got to come to the very top. You, you can't have a PSO team that is, uh, you know, trying to grow a number and hit a profit and that that's, again, in conflict of the partners. So what I love to see at companies, and I've seen it before, is, and, and we kind of had this, but I love to see a PSO partner charter, right? So it says, we're going to always work with the biggest companies because they usually demand it. We, we will work with companies, you know, PSO saying this, we will work with companies who demand to work with us. But for the most part, we're going to have a team really working with partners to help them do their business and the multiplier effect, right? And then there's always kind of packaged offerings, kind of maybe smaller, five grand for X hours of whatever. There's always going to be that repeatable stuff that's all based on the IP of, of the vendor. But I love seeing that idea of, here's our partner charter, here's what we're going to do, here's what you're going to do. And it starts to bring down the conflict with your services partners. Yeah. I'm, I'm asking you a lot of questions because I'm dealing with this right now, Darren. And we're shifting. We're, we're trying to really shift our strategy and push. We need the partner service delivery strategy. And so we're figuring out ways to, to address some of those you know, issues that you, you described. Absolutely. And just to finish off the harmonizing with direct sales, we were able to have a whole bunch of partner development reps. It started with just a couple, but it's it's like an SDR, but it's a partner development rep. And they are day in, day out working with the big resellers, the small resellers, the uh, the companies that, um, you know, on, on a one-to-many basis, you can talk to one partner and get all sorts of leads coming out of that, right? Versus an SDR who has to call up every individual customer. And so we were able to really grow that. And what those partner development reps also allowed us uh, to have was when a when a an AE a senior AE got a partner resale deal. Those were always the trickiest for them 
because they they thought they were losing out. They're losing control. Am I losing margin? No, you got comp neutrality. They were very confused. And and they would never take the training because they didn't have a deal on their plate. So they're not going to go to some, you know, training well ahead of time on something that might happen to them. They're like, hey, I got this resell deal now. I'm confused. I need help right now. Well, go talk to the PDR. They'll walk you through it. So that partner development rep was getting all sorts of leads from especially resellers. And they could then walk the AEs through it while, while they took over the deal. So they were great. And really the other, uh, so I, I talked about that partner service advisor group. We ended up having them really as a sales concierge. So if any seller, and there was hundreds at DocuSign, had a question about how to work with a partner or do we work with a certain partner or any question, they'd go to a Slack group and our guys were trained to basically answer right away. Usually they knew the answer and they'd say, hey, rep, yeah, we have that partner. Go talk to such and such. And by the way, that's because we had clean data that they could answer it so quick. And if they didn't have an answer right away, unless they had to come talk to me or someone else in the business, they'd say, hey, I hear you. I'm going to get back to you. I got your question. I'm going to get back to you. And so they acted as a sort of a concierge to the sellers. Again, going back to that main goal of what my team was there for is make it easier for partners to do business with us, make it easier for our sellers to do business with partners. Did you have a two-tier strategy, Darren? Did you have disties in the equation? We did. Yeah, we certainly, we did. I mean, you, you kind of still have to, I just remember back to writing a report on the future of IT distribution in the cloud 10 plus years ago. And and the conclusion was we're still going to need them for a while because they can organize, because they can uh, work in, uh, you know, various geographies. Um, sometimes that was the only way to to get to those other geographies and that. So certainly we we did have that. Okay, interesting. All right, so the last one maybe it's the most challenging: the systems, the automation of all this. And again, this is a I think a great story of a journey, a channel journey, if you will. <laughs> It's a great, uh, I, I do think it's a great story of maturity of a partner program, right from the early days of the dirt road to the, you know, the highway and paved and that. So in the early days, it was me figuring something out and giving an answer to someone. Then we were able to programmatize a little bit, document a little. Maybe it was the PSA team who could kind of solve a thing and get it through. Then we had the program's ops team that, you know, then we could take something and, and give it to them and they could figure it out. And then after that, we could automate it. And a, a great example of that, the example I would use for that one was the like partner scorecard data, right? So if we were looking at who are our best partners, first of all, it was like, okay, let's get into Salesforce and look at all the stuff. And then we're going to go over to the LMS and pull over the certification data. And you're bringing all this stuff together. After a while, we had kind of had a formula. You'd give that to the PSA team. Okay, they were busy off doing that. Then when we got the programs op team, they, they got good enough at it, the PSA, they could hand that to them. Then it was, hang on, we can automate this, right? And so, you know, it was, it was bringing all the disparate sources of data, of partner scorecard data, then getting into Snowflake, da-da-da-da. But you've got to have a team to be able to do that. And so there were so many different things that we needed to automate. We were able to get a, a partner systems dedicated scrum team. And the list of projects we had for them to kind of catch up and, and get working on was, was quite long. Scorecard data, the tier data was, was one of them. And, and it was just, it, it was such a great, I think, story of that maturity of, you know, figuring it out, you know, on the back of a napkin to, hey, just, just go into the portal, go into Salesforce, and you can get the, you know, the scorecard data on, on any partner. So I thought that was a great one. What sort of third-party tools were you using, PRMs or anything else like that? Sure. So DocuSign's a big Salesforce shop. We had considered some of the great partner portal vendors. 
the we had very strict rules within IT organization. And so we we went with Salesforce's own tools, good and bad. I mean, it's right on top of the data, which is is great, but you kind of have to build everything from scratch. So I really wish I had more choice in that, but I just there was a lot of rules for a company that values privacy and data security so much as DocuSign and we were, we were the contract company. So I was a little bit limited on, on that one and, and, and using other third parties, to, to be honest. So I would have loved to have done more with them. Yeah. Salesforce is, is so flexible, which is a great benefit, but also can get you in a lot of trouble too. It's like Lego. You can build anything out of it to, to an extent, but it was a lot of work to build it. And it, it didn't always look as, as pretty as perhaps some of the prepackaged. So I would have loved to have done more with, with them. Yeah. Any other third-party tools that you used? You don't have to talk, name the vendor, but types of technologies? To be honest, we did most things within Salesforce. I mean, the CPQ that we were working on was, was a Salesforce company. I mean, they were a bit of a, a one-stop shop. And, and like I said, we just had a very restrictive, for good reasons, um, set of policies. So they, you know, at that point, that, those were the, uh, the ones we were, we were working with. Um, we integrated with others like the you know, the DISTI cloud marketplaces and things like that. So we would work with a lot of other functionality, but the, you know, what we use to run our business. Yeah. We were a little bit uh, focused on the Salesforce stuff. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And at least you had the scrum team to help you build things. You need that. And that's right. And you had to, and, and we had that. And it also, I mean, just, we were catching up. So we did use outside consultancies. So that was a great one. And whenever you can use a company that's also a partner of yours, that's great. And so that's what we, we did to, to build up the stuff. I mean, we, we did no portal when I got there, two versions of portals since I was there, partner directory, countless internal Salesforce, you know, partner account and opportunity record updates, marketplace, API, partner solutions management, meaning, you know, taking a look at all the integrations we had for all the industries. It's some super cool stuff that we were able to do. And plus that tiered uh, the the levels dashboard and scorecard data. So we we accomplished a lot out of that group. Yeah, well, that's fantastic. Aaron, that's a great five step program to to get you from the the bumpy gravel road to the to the partner freeway. So you've moved on from from DocuSign. Tell us what you're doing now. Sure. So uh, DocuSign was just phenomenal for me, and in, in a lot of ways, um, I was able to take a bit of time off when we came back to Canada and. I slowly started getting back into advising companies around partner programs. I am not sure I can handle the 80 hours a week again. So I'm doing less than that, but I'm advising companies on, on this and, and really helping out other companies who are going through the same things I've been through. You know, I can, I can save them so much time because I've, I've, you know, I've, I've had the pain. I've, I've had the issues. I've had all the stuff go wrong and I can show you kind of how to get there. And so that's what I've been enjoying doing. Uh, plus, you know, having a bit of free time. I learned chess in the last year and a half, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Not great. My dad taught me chess when I was a kid, but I had, I don't think I've played since then. I just, you know, you know, that list of uh, Saturday chores that just kind of keeps growing and growing and growing. I said, well, it's a bit too long. I need to take some time and, and get to some of those things. So other than chess with a little bit of time off on your hands, any other uh, adventures outside the channel that you've been participating in? Well, Rob, funny you should ask. I listened to your bloody catamaran sailing thing and fell in love with the idea. And uh, we've been trying to find a, a boat and uh, it's, it's kind of hard to find them because I guess everybody has, since COVID wants to, uh, it's not a sailboat, not quite as cool as what you do. And it's certainly not the Caribbean, although we do have mosquitoes on where we are. But yeah, I, I, would, I just think that would be really fun is to go on some boating adventures and that. So sort of that's, that's a bit of a hope. I highly recommend it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Fantastic. 
Excellent, Darren. Any last thoughts or comments or things that I didn't ask you about? I think the the big one is, you know, I've seen a lot of companies and they don't always have this role of partner strategy and programs. And when I see these companies and when I think back to what I went through, I don't know how you do it without them. And I think they just solve so many problems and keep you compliant and keep you out of keep the channel chief out of jail. And there's just so much that can get done. If you continue to work with just adding people trying to get deals, and yet they are working, they're spinning their wheels because they don't have a process behind them. They're spinning their wheels because they got to talk to five people when they could have just gone to a guide that this team, you know, I, it's, you kind of need that partner operating system internally and externally, right? The program's as much internal as it is external. And you just, you know, you need that team to, to work on that. And I think it, it makes the whole business development or partner team work a lot better. Yeah, absolutely. I've got my guy, our VP of of programs and ops, Jeff Matten, and I'd be lost without him. (laughs) Like cutting off one of my arms. Yeah, it'd just be really, really tough. I've heard you mention him before, so I know he's important to you. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, very important. Awesome. Darren, thanks again. Best of luck in your new venture. Sounds exciting and fun. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on. I've really enjoyed your podcast and, and many of the others. I wish they were around years ago. Uh, because I, I just, I get in the car, I put them on, unless my family's in, they're not fond of the, sorry, no offense, but they don't love your podcast. I do. And I just learned so much from when you, you've had on and, and the other podcasts. So it's just been great. Funny story. I had one, what I love getting is, you know, notes from LinkedIn and Hey, I loved your podcast, blah, blah, blah. And one gal wrote me and she goes, yeah, my daughter loves the intro music. <laughs> it is good. She was dancing to it. So that was probably the best compliment I got. That was fun. <laughs> love it. All right, Darren, take care. We'll chat soon. And I want to stay in touch of how you're doing in this new venture. Absolutely. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Channel Journeys. For show notes and other Channel Journey podcasts, visit channeljourneys.com. If you liked today's show, please forward it to your channel friends and be sure to tune in for Rob's next channel adventure. All right, guys, there you go. Five ways to scale your partner business. Which ones are you already doing and which ones do you need to start doing? Thanks again for listening. And thanks again, Darren, for sharing those great tips. The first two, programmatize everything and document everything are so important for scale. I find partner businesses that have been around for years that still haven't done that adequately. Last episode, I asked all of you to help me grow the show by sharing the Channel Journeys podcast with one of your channel friends or colleagues. A big thank you to all of you that did that. If you haven't yet, please do. By helping me grow the show, you're helping me get more great guests who will share more channel wisdom with you. All right, it's time to knuckle down and wrap up the first quarter of 2023. For some of you, it's the end of your fiscal year. Wishing all of you a strong finish, more great shows to come, and until then, have an awesome channel journey.